The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au. That's www.noblebaptist.org.au. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the council of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who were at the work believed, and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Titus, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you all. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against them. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a noble miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Thank you, Sarah. Let's pray again. Loving Father, again, as we open the word, we pray, God, that you would speak, and that we would hear what you would say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Acts chapter 1, Christ returns to glory, and the disciples gather and pray in the upper room. 
In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all the believers there. And the gospel is preached with great power and great authority. Many are saved and baptized and added to the church. And then in Acts chapter 3, the lame man is healed by the Lord Jesus Christ through Peter and John. And that's followed by another preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Him crucified and raised and exalted and healing and saving sinners through the forgiveness of sins. In these three first chapters of Acts, there is an exuberant joy in God's salvation amongst those who are being saved. And now as we begin the three chapters of Acts 4, 5, and 6, there is opposition that is rising against the gospel and against the church. Opposition happens because our defeated enemy will try everything in his power and means to dissuade the gospel, to dissuade people from believing, lest more come to Christ. In Acts chapter 4, there is opposition from outside the church, and yet the gospel continues to be preached. In Acts chapter 5, there is opposition from within, inside the church, as the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira comes up. In Acts chapter 6, there is opposition again from within the church, again through the division between the Jews and the Hellenistic widows over the distribution of food. The truth is there that 2,000 years ago or 100 years ago, then as now, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified will bring results. Results number one, there will be arousing of the opposition of the enemy against, against the gospel, against those who preach. It will also result in the belief of many who hear the word. So what is the message from, for us for today from this text? And it's simply this, that preaching Christ crucified, raised and exalted as the Savior who is Lord will bring both opposition and believe. Preaching in Christ, number one, will bring opposition. I want you to notice the setting of the story, which begins where Peter's portico sermon ended. So as chapter 3 finishes and Peter is preaching the gospel, he carries on and chapter 4 rolls on and they're still there. They're there speaking and teaching and proclaiming Christ to the people. It's the same message they preach in Acts 2 and 3. They're continuing their witness to all the gathered people. And perhaps as Peter finished his address to them all, both he and John now take a smaller group of those people and take them aside and begin to teach them and explain to them more fully the way of salvation by repentance of sin and faith in God. Perhaps they begin to do as Jesus said in the Great Commission, Having made disciples, they now teach them all that Jesus commanded us. One thing is for certain, and we see it in the text, they are teaching the people about the resurrection of the dead in Jesus Christ. And at this point, the opposition of priests and captain of the guard, the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin begins. The same turmoil, the noise and shouting that drew all the people from all over the temple has now drawn another less friendly audience. Notice who the opposition are in chapter 4 and verse 1. It talks about the priests. They're the Levite tribe. They're the ones who serve and take care of the offerings and so on. 
There's the captain of the guard. He is the second in rank only to the high priest himself. So he is like the chief of the temple police. He looks after all of the affairs and the safety and security of the temple precincts. Then there are the Sadducees, and they're the priestly sect of the Jews. In fact, they are all from the Sadducean sect of the Jews. The Sadducees trace their roots back to a man named Zadok, the high priest. In fact, they take their name from the Hebrew for the word for righteousness, which is Sadak. So they call the Sadducees. That's actually a Greek version of their name. The Sadducees believe that the Messianic age was ushered in during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament in the Maccabean Revolt back in the second century. These Sadducees saw themselves as continuing what their fathers had begun, trying to appease their Roman occupiers to ensure their survival and the survival of the nation. The two facts for us are very key about the Sadducees. First of all, the high priest, the priest, the temple guard are all drawn from the Sadducean sect and so, this is the point, they control what went on within the temple precepts. So the Sadducees kept their fingers on everything and they kept control of everything going on. And the second fact that's very important for us is they were opposed to any developments in the thinking of Judaism. And so the Sadducees did not believe in angels, they didn't believe in demons, and they did not believe and accept the resurrection of the dead. It's one of the reasons why they asked Jesus the parable about what happens in the resurrection, trying to trip him up. Here's my cheesy joke about the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection, so, so they are very sad, you see. Very good. That's the comedy moment of the day we're done. I don't know why turns Never mind. They controlled the temple precincts and they, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They arrived greatly annoyed because Peter and John are teaching the people, but under whose authority? Who gave them the right to stand there and proclaim the name of Christ? They're teaching about the resurrection from the dead, something they don't accept or believe in. And so they greatly annoy, they arrest Peter and John, and probably the healed men as well, and they jail them. Perhaps in a local jail, perhaps even attached to the temple itself. They haven't been charged, just been kept in custody. And then the Sanhedrin is gathered and called by the Sadducees the next morning. It was a night to think and consider and pray. Would their boldness, would their standing forth to preach the gospel, would it survive? Would it stand? Would their determination to stand for Christ survive in the face of powerful opposition? No doubt as they were in jail, considering what tomorrow would bring, the Holy Spirit reminded them of Jesus' words that he spoke to them in Luke 21. He said that before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you out of the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name, saying, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You take that text and you look at everything that happens in Acts chapter 4 in almost point by point, they're seeing Jesus' words fulfilled. All the morning came. The Sanhedrin gathered 
want you to notice in Acts verse, uh, 4, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says the next day there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all were who were of the high priestly family. The Sanhedrin was made up of the ruling high priest at that time plus 17 other men and those 70 men are drawn from three different groups within the Jewish leadership. There's first of all the rulers. Now they would describe the high priests and their families. So you see in verse 6, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was a very influential high priest. As I understand it, he at this point had retired, and his son or son-in-law, I'm not sure which one, Caiaphas, is now the ruling high priest, and he's very much a puppet with either his father or father-in-law's hand out the back of his jacket. He did whatever his father-in-law wanted. The second group of people is the elders. We see them there mentioned. And they're probably tribal leaders amongst the two tribes that are back in the land, the Jews and the Levites. And then there is the scribes. They're not merely men that just write out copies of the law. They're actually teachers of the law. They're experts in their law. And these men gathered, they were the most powerful group of men in the nation at that time. And there's 70 of them, or 71 actually, and these three men that come to stand and answer their questions. The Pharisees at that point most likely held the majority uh, in the Sanhedrin. The Sadducees were not in the majority. And you say, what difference does that make? Well, if you notice the charge they lay before them, they dropped the charge about preaching about the resurrection of the dead because the Pharisees did believe the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees did not. So when they bring charges, they only bring the charge about whose name and whose authority are you preaching. They gathered together. Uh, some have uh, speculated that the Sanhedrin gathered in Solomon's colonnade in the portico at one end of it. It was a huge, huge uh, structure they could easily gather. Some others have said they gathered in a hall in the southwest corner of the temple. What we do know is the Sanhedrin, when it gathered, it sat in a great big, huge semicircle so that every member of the Sanhedrin could see every other member of the Sanhedrin. They could all see each other's faces and know what they were thinking. And as one would speak, they could all hear him and see him. And right in the middle, they place these three. And you say, why do I say three? You notice Peter and John are mentioned there. But if you look at verse number 14, you'll notice that the healed man is standing right beside them. And so I would think it is a fairly good in indicator that he was arrested with them, he was in jail with them, and now he appears beside them as they're to answer charges. They place Peter and John, the healed man, in the middle and inquire of them, what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, by whose authority are you doing this? Indicating the healed man. They said, What would you say? And there's 70 of them. And as we know from this text, it says they recognized them as uneducated people, common men, they're fishermen. They still got the smell of fish about them. And all of these high officials and their lawyers and doctors, they're all gathered all around them. The most powerful men in the, in the country, 71 to 3. How would you say? The last time the Sanhedrin had gathered with one from their group in the middle, it led to the violent execution of an innocent man whose name was Jesus Christ. 
That mockery of a trial that took place had Peter outside the courtyard vowing he didn't even know Jesus for fear of being included in the execution as well. Well, praise God, these men do exactly as they have been doing since the Holy Spirit came. They stand firm in their faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they grasp this new opportunity brought to them by God. They preach Christ to the opposition, verses 8 to 12. Peter begins with a polite address to the Sanhedrin, rulers and elders. And he starts his answer to their examination in the context of a good deed done to a crippled man. And he makes it very clear from the very beginning that it is in the name, meaning in the authority of Jesus Christ by which they acted. And then, again, as he did after the lame man's healing, Peter brings a bold gospel witness and message. I want us to notice several things regarding Peter's, Peter's witness to them. I want you to notice number one, it's a spirit-filled witness and message. Notice the verse 8, it says that Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. This was the fulfillment of Jesus' promise back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And Jesus had told them right before he went up to be with the Father, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, the utmost parts of the earth. First came the filling of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Acts chapter 2 with the power for life and ministry. Then they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Listen, brothers and sisters, any and every gospel presentation must be made in the power and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Being a witness to Christ's power to forgive sin and save souls must always be in full submission to the Holy Spirit. I do not believe it can be made any other way than by the Spirit of God's leading. It is the Spirit of God who will give us the words to speak. He will give them as we prepare and as we stand to speak. It is the Spirit of God who will convict the sinner of sin. It is the Spirit of God who will draw them to God through Christ. It is the Spirit of God alone who applies salvation to that listener. Our responsibility in all of this, from Ephesians 5 verse 18, is to live being continually filled with the Spirit, meaning that we do everything to avoid hindering the Spirit of God's influence and effect in our lives, to live under and to pray for His ever-increasing influence. And when the opportunity arises, and we feel that gentle tug on our heart that says, you need to speak, we open our mouths and we speak, and we speak as our brother prayed, we speak boldly. I want you to notice, secondly, it's a sin-exposing witness and proclamation. Notice in verse number 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter makes it clear that the Sanhedrin, who are sitting in judgment of Peter and John, they themselves are guilty of sin. They crucified and rejected this Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter boldly identifies them as sinners. 
In fact, as I read this yesterday afternoon, I was just meditating on that one idea. It almost struck me like Nathan the prophet who walked in front of King David and tells us some elaborate story about a stolen sheep. And David, in righteous indignation, says the man should be killed. And Nathan looks up and he can almost see his hand rising up and pointing at David. You're the man. Peter makes it clear that the you crucified is emphatic. You crucified him. And he confronts he, uh, the, the Sanhedrin with the power and the sense of a prophetic word from God to those men. Our witness to the gospel must deal with the issue of sin. Jesus did not come to make nice people better. He did not die to make our already good lives complete. Jesus died a shockingly violent death to pay the penalty for sin. And Christ died to remove our sin and reconcile us to God most holy. Christ was crucified and raised to make dead sinners live. The guilt of sin needs to be exposed so that we, the listener, will know and understand our need to be saved. Peter exposes their sin of crucifying Jesus and rejecting the cap or the cornerstone. Notice thirdly, it's a scripture expounding witness. From that same point of their rejecting Christ, in verse 11, Peter is referring to Psalm 118 and verse 22. And I know as some of the Sanhedrin heard his words as he spoke, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the capstone. And no doubt as they heard his words, they were reminded of Jesus' own parable in Mark 12 about the son who was cast out of the vineyard by the tenants. He was beaten and killed. And Jesus concluded that very parable with the very same words that Peter speaks here. He says, you have rejected the stone. He has become the capstone, the cornerstone. They, the Sanhedrin, have rejected it. Peter's witness was from Christ, sorry, was drawn from the Old Testament texts. If you look at that little note sheet in, the, in your bulletin there, you'll see I put a whole series of references where Peter is preaching and the verses he is expounding. I'm not going to go through them. I'll just put them there for your reference. But you can see that as he preaches the gospel, when you think about Acts chapter 7, and Stephen is preaching, he brings this long, sweeping exposition of all the Old Testament history, all the history of the Jews. And the message and witness that we make for Christ must be a scripture expounding, a Bible teaching message. Why well, say, why is that? Because scripture is the words of the Holy Spirit. Scripture itself is one long testimony to Christ. On the road to Emmaus, Christ opened to them all the things regarding himself from the Old Testament scriptures, from Moses and all the prophets. Peter expounded scripture in his witness to Christ, and so must we. I want you to notice, fourthly, it's a Savior exalting witness and proclamation. Verses 9 and 12, you can see there, what is Peter's central theme? It's Christ in him crucified, raised, and exalted. Peter proclaims Jesus Christ above all else. That's his central theme. In both these two messages, from one in chapter 3 and this one in chapter 4, he starts with the healed man, and he quickly moves as fast as he can to the next position of Jesus Christ. That's his main point. 
in verse 9, He is the powerful Savior healing the sick and the crippled. Notice in verse number 10, He describes a humble Savior coming from Nazareth. One of the disciples even said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was considered the humble, low place. It was the backwards corner of uh, Judea and Galilee. It was a humble Savior he proclaimed. In verse 11, he proclaims the suffering Savior crucified for our sin. In verse 11, he proclaims a living Savior raised from the dead. In verse 12, he proclaims an exalted Savior establishes both the foundation stone and the top capstone. That idea there, the capstone is the very highest stone, the last piece that is put upon the temple as they were building it. It was the crowning glory of all the temple. And Peter saying, this is Jesus. He is the crowning glory of his own new temple, which is his own body, the church. Our witness for Christ must exalt and magnify Jesus Christ, who is Savior and Lord. The Savior who is Lord. Listen, our men and women, our world that we live in desperately needs saving. God's terrible wrath against unrepentant sinners is restrained, restrained for now by His grace, waiting for all of His elect to come to faith. But God will not tarry forever. His wrath will fall. We must make Christ known. We have a great need. All the world has a need. We need to be made whole, to be made new creatures in Christ, to experience spiritual and emotional and physical salvation. Christ did not come to merely show us how to live a better life. Christ did not come to make you feel better about yourself. Christ did not come so we could be healthy and wealthy. Jesus Christ came to save us from sin, to save us from death as a result of sin, to save us from the world system that wants to keep us away from God. He came to save us from the wrath of God Himself. And in so doing all of those, He came to fill us with unspeakable joy and happiness in God alone. Jesus came and lived in the humblest of circumstances. Why? So, to identify Himself with His people. Jesus suffered unimaginable pain and torment of soul as He was on the cross. Why would He do that? To show us the infinitely holy God's hatred of sin. Jesus was raised. He was raised to the life to display His deity as the Son of Almighty God and to give us the promise and hope of eternal life in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the exalted Savior who saves all. All who come to faith and repentance of sin. Once you notice, fifthly, it is the salvation proclaiming witness. Jesus is not one of many ways in which we may be saved. Jesus Christ is the only way that we may be saved. Literally what Peter says there is, it is necessary that by his name we be saved. Jesus is not one among many options for salvation. It is not Jesus or Buddha. It is not Jesus or Hinduism or Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or some other way. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. It is not Jesus added on to some other system. 
It's not Jesus and Buddha, or Jesus and Muhammad, or Jesus and Islam. It is Jesus Christ and Him crucified alone. That's the only way. That great verse that you see on the front of the bulletin comes from this text. And there is salvation in no one else. He states it as a negative. If you try to come to God any other way than Christ, you cannot come another way. There's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We do a terrible disservice, brothers and sisters, when we present the gospel as an option. You know, you can join up with the, the Probus Club if you want to. You can join up with the archery club if you want to. You can join up with the racing club if you want to. You can take Jesus Christ as Savior if you want to. We present it as an option that we can just sort of weigh up in our minds. What's the pros and cons? Am I really going to gain anything out of this? And, and think of it that way. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why does he do that? Because he has a point of time in which the judge will come, and that is Jesus himself. We must be saved. It's not an option. It's a must. It's a demand. And as Peter stands there with John beside him, the hill man standing there, you see the hill man, he's still enjoying his new feet, his new legs, he's having a good time because he can walk. And they can see a clear as day right in front of them the power of God to heal, to make a man whole in the authority of Jesus' name. This man stands there, and they can deny all the words they want, but they can look at that man and see, look, that's what God can do. And that's what Jesus Christ, whom we crucify, can do. But Peter finishes off with that great statement. Salvation. In no one else. He's telling them that. He's saying, listen, you crucified the Savior. You put him to death. And you deserve God's wrath and judgment because you destroyed God's anointed one. But now there's salvation. It's a hope offering message, is it not? We don't go out offering a message that's just flippant and careless and it can give you a few benefits here and there. We might enjoy them for a while. We go out and we proclaim a message that gives hope to every single person who will hear and who will listen. Peter has spoken under the influence of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And look what's happened. The Sanhedrin has arrested and imprisoned these men to examine them, assuming that they are firmly in charge and control, but God is at work. Peter and the Spirit's influence has seized the opportunity and turned their examination into his proclamation of the gospel. He's presented Christ with the, the healer and savior. He has charged them with sin. He's proved it from scriptures. He's presented Christ alone as Savior and Lord. The defendant has become the prosecutor. The witness has become the prophet of God, calling those leaders and judges of the people to repent and believe. What will they do? How they react. We're going to look next Sunday at their reaction in the balance of Acts chapter 4 down to verse uh, 22. But I want to go back to one thing I said earlier. Preaching the gospel will bring two results. It will arouse opposition. It will arouse anger. You tell people that they're sinners and they deserve to go to hell. It's not the most 
politically correct message. In fact, it's anything but a politically correct message. People don't like to be told they're sinners. They don't have to be told they're going to hell. But we tell them we have a Savior who will save them for such. Would you go back to verse number four? I skipped over on purpose. In verse number four, the Bible says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. What he means by that is, if you take the total number of all of the men that were saved, there's 5,000. It doesn't mean there's 5,000 new. There's been a lot of debate as to what that actually means. But the total number of men came about 5,000. If you add on women and children beyond that, the number is much larger. And there's, you add that to the other group saved earlier, and the church is now in the thousands in a matter of weeks. Notice that there are a number of different respondents to the message. If you go back to Acts chapter 3 for a second, and you look at what happens, uh, verse number 11, 10-11. It says, All the people recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And while they clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And then you notice back up here in 4 and verse 4, there are those who believe. And then in verse 5 and 6, there are those who oppose the gospel. Those three different kinds of responses could describe all of us, could they not? <laughs> There are some who come along and wonder and amazement and they look over the fence and they see what's going on and there's a sense of, wow, what's happening over here? And they stay firmly on their side of the fence looking over to see what's going on. Are you one of those? As you come into this place this morning, some of you are their faces I don't recognize here. God bless you. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here because you can hear a message about Jesus Christ. <laughs> Are you one of those looking over the fence in wonder and amazement at what Jesus has done, but not stepping forward, not coming to faith in Christ, not listening to the message, just keeping it at arm's distance? It's an interesting thing to study. I was marveling. You go to those uh, public television programs on some biblical topic, and they pull up some professor in some obscure university, and it's clearly, it's clear in everything he says. He doesn't believe the message. He's just studied it. He's an expert on the text. He's an expert on stuff about it. He comes up with all kinds of crazy explanations about what the message of the Bible is. And you go, here's a man who stood in wonder and amazement and looked over the fence into God and the gospel and into Christianity. And he looks for distance, but he does not himself trust and believe. Brothers and sisters, it's possible to come to church year after year after year after year and stand looking over the fence and saying what a wonderful thing this Christianity is, but not stepping forward and throwing yourselves at Christ and knowing what it is to truly believe and be saved. Then there's other men, these opposers. They come, ah, oh, there's a problem with their theology, and they start to pick apart the theology. Ah, oh, you're preaching the resurrection, oh, we don't believe in that. And they rise up in opposition. If you look a little further down, I'll give you a, a little hint on next week's message. They notice that there's one phrase in here, which I can't put my finger on. It says, because of the people. In other words, the Sanhedrin realized what was going on. They saw the power of God at work. But because of the people and because of their position 
the Sanhedrin. And now there's a sense of, oh, now what do we do? Oh, if we admit these people are right, then we'll have to admit that Jesus was right. And, oh, we crucified the Messiah. Oh, and there's a sense of fear. Brothers and sisters, it's possible to look at the Christianity, look on the message of the gospel and say, I'm afraid. If I step forward, if I claim Christ, if I believe in Jesus and begin to repent of my sin, my friends will think I've lost my mind. They'll think I'm crazy. And there's a fear of what others will say. Brothers and sisters, are you, are you standing in that pile, in that group? Posing because you're afraid of what people might say. You're keeping the back, but not really coming forward as a Christian because you're afraid of what your friends might say. One of the things that I wanted to take time to look at, but I didn't for the sake of time, I might even bring it up, is Peter. Think of those two scenes. Six, eight weeks ago, he's standing outside the courtyard. I believe it's at Caiaphas' house, or Annas' house. And Jesus is inside, he said, he is all gathered in there. And they're heaping abuse on him, and they're asking one question after another. And what someone looks at Peter as a young servant girl who has no legal standing in the nation. She looks and says, aren't you one of his? And he goes, no, 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 not me. I'm just passing through. I'm trying to warm my hand. It's all. That's it. You know? No one just began again. And he keeps going on. He finally calls down oaths and curses. May God strike me dead if I know this man. And now he stands in the same place that Jesus stood, surrounded by the Sanhedrin, and the Spirit of God has filled him. He has become saved. He knows his future is absolutely secure. Jesus has already told him in cryptic terms that he will one day suffer the death of the cross. And with boldness and a sense of joy, I can just see it in his face, in the mind's eyes, he's preaching. He looks up and there's just a light in his as he proclaims Jesus as Savior and Lord, the tremendous impact and influence that the presence of the Spirit of God has made in that man's life as he proclaims Jesus in the face of opposition. The work of the Spirit of God radically changes a man and a woman. There's three or four groups here, I lost count now. There's the, those who wonder, there's those who are afraid. There are those who oppose, and then there are those in verse number four who heard the word and believed. Brother and sister, men and women, you're sitting here this morning. We're almost done. My question to you is which group do you stand in? The presentation of that message. Which group do you stand in? Where will it be when the day comes and you will stand before God? You can say, well, you know. I thought it was amazing, but it didn't matter. Well, you know, I thought it was really interesting, but you know, my friends might laugh at me, so I didn't trust Christ. Well, you know, I had a real problem with their theology, and I just, you know, I didn't know. I just, I wouldn't. Or you could say, you know, I heard the word. I heard about salvation. I heard about the forgiveness of sins. I heard about the mercy that God was pouring out on sinners. I heard the message that Jesus died for me. And I'm standing here this morning before a living God. I have one, one claim to entrance into heaven. And that is this, that Jesus died and he died for me. You see, 
brother and sister, when we stand before God, some of you might go out into the world and be missionaries and see thousands saved for Christ. But when you stand before God, you won't stand and say, I went out and preached the gospel and I brought thousands with me, Lord, so this is my ticket to enter. I hope by God's grace He will raise up pastors and elders and teachers from this church. One day you will stand before God and you won't say, you know, I served as an elder for 50 years. I was faithful in teaching and leading and shepherding the people of God. That's my ticket. And you'll say, no, that's not. And all that's said and done, and we stand before Christ, our one ticket in, our one claim to stand in the presence of God for all eternity is Jesus died, and he died for me. Brother and sister, men and women, you're in this church not by accident. You're sitting here not because you just wandered in looking for a place to sit down for half an hour, 45, an hour and a half, whatever it is. You're here because God brought you here. You've been in this church for 50 years. You're here because God brought you here. And my question to you this morning is where do you stand? What will you do with that message? By God's grace, I hope, I pray. Cry out to God, sitting down there as blessed with leading the communion that God would have mercy on us this morning. That His Spirit would be poured out and men and women would be saved. May God save you this morning. If you know not Christ, trust Him. Turn away from your sin. In faith, turn to God. And no one is to be saved or made whole. Whether you're crippled or not, you will dance the dance of joy that that healed man danced because he had been made whole. You be made whole in your heart and your spirit. God will one day, I assure you, one day make your body whole. It's coming. What will you do with the message? Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray together for the service of the death of the Sin, sin, 
we would preach and proclaim and expound the scriptures which testify of Christ. We would call men and women to faith and repentance. We would preach the great Savior for terrible sinners. Father, we thank you for the salvation that we have only a joy in Jesus this morning. Father, I plead with you for help. As we go home, Father, may this message not fade away. May it stay with us, sustain our hearts and minds. May it impress deeply upon us, all of us, Lord. Father, some of us need to repent of sin. Some of us need, oh God, to speak up and step out and boldly speak as Peter did. So, Father, we give you thanks for this time. We thank you, O oh God, for the worship that we've enjoyed together. Father, we pray that your spirit will do a work in the heart of every single one of us. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.